The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello and welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today we radiate responsibility with Rajan Shankara, the author of Everything Is Your Fault. Now, Rajan is currently a meditation guide, award-winning writer, author of four books, self-development mentor, online coach, fitness and health expert, business owner, and podcast host. Hello, Raj. How are you? Hi, I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being on with me. This is going to be fun. Um, I just have to ask, when do you find time to sleep? You do a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning to not do so much. Um, uh, I just uh, finished a year contract consulting with NASA and um, also spent a year learning how to master the stock market. So I'm um, I'm in a position now where I'm going to relax for maybe a week or two before learning something new. Oh, and my daughter just turned one years old today. Oh, happy birthday. That's wonderful. Well, happy birthday, dad, because when a daughter is born, a dad is created. Oh, thank you. Very very well said. I've never heard that before. Oh, my goodness. So you are a former monk. This is part of like what brings you to this to this point. A Hindu monk. Now, I've heard of all kinds of monks, but I did not know them. Now, this shows my ignorance. Have not heard that the Hindu faith also had monasteries. Oh, that's not, that's common. Uh, I w- I'm not surprised you say that. Um, really? uh, we, I've found all the time people know very little about monastic culture in general. Even a lot of people are surprised that monks drink beer and wine, right? And look at the look on your face. I, oh my gosh. Now the Catholics, you know, they're kind of known for brewing. The Catholic monks are known for brewing and, and making wine and stuff like that. But a lot of people 
people don't know that 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 oh. Catholic monks, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, we have monks to thank for uh, champagne, chocolate, bread, wine, fine beer, uh, especially out of Belgium. So yeah, um, Hindus or Eastern um, philosophical faiths have uh, possi- quite possibly the oldest monastic culture they're the the longest running monks we can take the credit for that i think nice good on you <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's so funny because i you know i've been paging through your book and in the introduction you talk about how you came this close to be being busted for a hell of a lot of drugs yeah yeah wow um, yeah when i was younger um I don't know. I was I was a criminal for some reason. I it, well, I know why. I thought that was what was required of me to be a man. Sure. Yeah. That's uh, common. That's very common. Yeah. Yeah. So where where I grew up, um, that's just what you did. You know, instead yeah. of buying uh, drugs, you sold them, and that's just our that was our community. And thank God, I was. Um, I was very close uh, to being incarcerated, like like a lot of my friends that I grew up with. Um, but I was uh, spared, I guess. I was given a second chance by a police officer. That story was amazing. It was basically, these are not the droids you're looking for type of yeah. situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I trust you. I can't even explain it. I mean... Wow. I can explain it, but it doesn't make logical sense. It, it was a very magical moment. And somehow being, uh, you know, the dum-dum that I was, I actually noticed how special that moment was. And, and I yeah. decided then and there to uh, change everything and, and become a, a mature uh, adult that would give back to society eventually. And I did. In, in spades. Honestly. Yeah. Now, where did you grow up, by the way? Chicago. Chicago. Oh, yeah. 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 Which had in the 90s gone through a, an enormous amount of gentrification from the city mm-hmm. where um, everyone got everyone from uh, like the they call them the wild hundreds from uh, 100th Street down to like 67th or something. Um they were pushed out of their apartments down into the suburbs from the that kind of middle or early part of, of Chicago, the city, before you get into the heart of the city. Um, and the, basically, Chicago is surrounded in a circle against the water by, um, by, sub, by suburbs and then inner city. And then you have the heart of it. So everyone on this outer kind of inner city range was pushed down into the suburbs and um, it was uh, it it was where I it was where I was formed, where my early you know youth uh, took place, and, and it was an interesting time to be alive. It was an amazing time to be alive, actually. And you know, with these strong role models, you know, for good or bad, you know, shaping you, who you felt that you had to be, what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be an adult Mm. and seeing all of this. Now, um, did you grow up Hindu? No, no, no. And I might, 
Raj is not even my birth name. So I made this radical change after giving a second chance, starting an asphalt business with my best friend, um, you know, being straight as an arrow and just uh, really kind of starting the first um, financial stability in my life and, and getting a good head on my shoulders. And then all of a sudden, um, it, it, it made me very unhappy. We, we were so we were very successful as young entrepreneurs starting an asphalt business. Um, and we were making thousands of dollars sometimes in a day. Um, and it was too much too soon uh, for, for an 18 year old, 19 year old. And me and my uh, business partner and best friend were wondering what was the point of everything if, if we could make all this money, but, but we were still kind of lost. What, what exactly were we born for? So we were asking really big questions and I was inspired by a book that I had read by a monk, by a Hindu monk um, named Paramahansa Yogananda autobiography of a Yogi. You, oh yeah. Yeah. Huge yeah. Book. Um, and I finished the book and decided that I would not necessarily become a Hindu, but but uh, seek yogic mastery in the jungle somewhere. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> what jungle? Uh, I went to uh, the jungles of Kauai, Hawaii, the smallest nice. uh, island of the Hawaiian island chain. Mm-hmm. And so there was a monastery there? Yes. So my, my friend and business partner said, hey, if you're going to go to Kauai, uh, I, there's a, a monastery there with monks studying and everything. And I sort of put it in the back of my mind. That wasn't why I went to Kauai. I went to Kauai because my sister uh, was sort of around me at the time, uh, my older sister, and uh, she kind of recognized that I was needing a, uh, a spiritual journey, uh, a quest, which she had gone on years earlier. And she's a little bit older than I am. Um, and she said, well, if you're going to do something, go to Hawaii, go to Kauai, and uh, I will come with you. And I will, because that's where she went on her spiritual journey there and, and across Europe and things like that. But Kauai was, was influential for her. It's a very special place if you've never been. So, um, yeah, a long story short, I ended up there with my sister who trained me how to live in the wild for one month. And then she flew back to the mainland. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to dedicate myself to this path. I'm going to live and follow these um, protocols for surviving uh, unseen in the jungle. And um, she asked me uh, to go to the monastery and not stay in the wild before she left. Um, and that's how I ended up uh, sort of, as they say, um, begged for entrance into the monastery training. Wow. Um... So, okay, again, forgive There's my heart here. There's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to like 
Yeah, it's like, you know, when people ask me certain questions, it's like, how much time do you have? <laughs> oh, my God. So did you have to convert to Hinduism? Yes. Like, what's yes, that process like? Oh, man, that was special. Oh, um, bet. That was special. I write about it in the book. Uh, yeah. There's a part in there where I explain uh, changing my name. So... Uh, I had to go home. Okay. So after a whole other special set of um, circumstances and synchronicities, I get admitted to the monastery after getting denied. And um, so they, they approve a six month trial. And so after the six months, they say, okay, now you go back home for, for at least three months, you change your name, you convert to this religion um, and you let everyone know so that we're not considered some weird cult factory. Well, that makes sense. Exactly. Right. I thought that was pretty good. Um, and that's what happened. I went back home. I had to, uh, for, so for the name change process then, which was, um, 2007, I think 2007 or 2000. Yeah. 2007. In Indiana, I was uh, had my residence at the time. Um, I had to go and, and put my name in the newspaper and, and tell people via the newspaper. I had to get a lawyer. Um, and I'm sitting there in front of the judge. And um, she, she calls my, my name and my case and me and the lawyer go up to the, to the bench there. And she's like, okay, what, what's this all about? And my lawyer says, your honor, my client wants to change his legal name and move to a Hawaiian island to become a monk for the rest of his life. And uh, she looked at me and she's like, young man, is this true? <laughs> Fair enough. And I said, yes. That, that's exactly what I want to go do. And she picks up her gavel and she says, have a nice life. <laughs> and um, yes. so I was sort of past that barrier, past a few other barriers. I, I, I go back to the monastery and get a formal uh, ceremony into the religion. And uh, it wasn't much of a stretch because... Uh, what you what do, what you don't know is that my mother uh, is a Wiccan high priestess. Okay, so so she raised me pagan. You know, uh, we were surrounded by deities in every home. Every every home we were in had a temple room that was like the biggest room in the house. Um, and uh, she always had students. She was always teaching meditation and karma and reincarnation were just a part of our our philosophy already so that's kind of who i was even though i was a a, a weird kind of troublemaker um i still understood the laws of karma and things like that and so when i found the monastery's teachings and they spoke about these things i said okay well this this is the oldest religion in the world and um, I, I was very curious to find out the source of yoga and, and study from the best, right? And I wanted, I wanted the best. And um, 
it was easy. It was, and I'm, I still identify as a Hindu, even though I'm not a monk anymore. I, I, I kept my, my legal name change and, um, I, I can never lose the faith. The, the teachings to me are, are a part of me. Right. I can imagine because I mean, if you're going to go to the trouble of legally changing your name, yes, that's a major process. Yes. Yes, it is. Right. And, you know, that that is to me is kind of unusual to actually legally change your name that rather than spiritually change it. Ah, yes. I mean, I know a lot of people who have just spiritually changed their name. You got it in the in especially in Eastern faiths. um, uh, It's very common for a uh, for European followers to to keep their birth name and uh, Mm -hmm. just pick up some astrologically friendly name, which is fine, whatever, whatever they want to do, but uh, that's extremely common. And we, so the, the monastic organization that trained me in Hawaii was Orthodox is Orthodox. So Mm -hmm. they're very strict, very much. uh, This is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. This is how we're going to do it. And it's very strict. So when you, you know, you changed your name, you didn't do it, you know, cause it sounded cool. You did it because, um, you wanted to change your identity. Right. You wanted to lose who you were. Yes. And become this new spiritual person. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. What did your family think of that? They thought it was a phase. Sure. I can but see that. Had- they went through the five, is it, I think it's five stages, stages of, grief. of grief. Yeah. However many stages of grief, but yeah. yeah. So, so, um, I went through a process of renunciation from family, right? So as a Hindu monk, which, which this is different than other religions, uh, in, in Eastern religious faiths, you, when you become a monk, you renounce, you, you throw, renounce, renounce means to throw down. So I, I threw down my identity, but I also had to go through a renunciation of, of family and friends. And I had to, it was, so this is very strict. And that was easy when I was younger, you know, I'm 19 years old, 20 years old coming in. That was easy at the time. Um, I was like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do my thing and I'll never talk to you again. So I, I, over, over the course of 12 years, I talked to my family about once a year. So I talked to them about 12 times in 12 years and they visited uh, early on and to come see me and everything and to make sure um, everything was okay. But, but they were, you know, they were upset. I mean, I, I lost touch with who I, with my place in the family. And, uh, I, I, I'll be honest, I've been out, uh, three years and I'm, I'm still rebuilding that, that place in my family. I can imagine that's a long time to be checked out from the family. Yeah. A lot of changes go on in the family. Family members that I didn't know. And, um, first time I saw my niece, uh, she said, where have you been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. I mean, that, that, that broke me. That was one of the things that, um, actually pushed me out. Oh, is it really? Yeah. The, the, the understanding and the maturity of, of what family means. 
Of course. And of course, now you've got your own family. Yes. Your daughter. You've, yeah, you've got your own family. That is tremendously important as we grow older. Now, so what was life like in the monastery? What was like a normal day, week, a month? Sure. Imagine a uh, militaristic body of alpha males in the jungle that wore robes and uh, studied self-discipline and self-mastery. And that's exactly what you would have at Kauai's Hindu Monastery. You have a group of about 20 individuals who follow a ranked um, system of hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, and going rising up the ranks through challenges, through psychological disciplines, through years of dedication and austerity. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we start the morning early. Um, it, most people got up by four. And we were in roll call in the temple uh, by 5.30 sharp, or else there were consequences. Uh, If you were late by, uh, what was it? About 60 seconds. So if you showed up at 5.31 um, and and you were out of place and you weren't in line and everything, uh, you had to do hard labor basically all day. Oh, my. So you only do that a few times and then you're get like five alarm clocks. Um, and after roll call, there's a temple um, ceremony and then that's 30 minutes. And then there's a one hour meditation um, and then break for an hour. So you can walk the grounds, get breakfast. Your morning meeting is at 8 a.m. And there's five departments in the monastery and you go to the apartment that the department that you were assigned to, and you work from eight to uh, twelve thirty. You clean from twelve thirty to one o eight. At one o eight, you have lunch with the group on the floor, traditional Indian lunch. Um, and uh, one thirty is break till three. So a lot of the younger monks during their break would. Uh, train uh, in the gym and then um you could you could do laundry you could could do whatever you wanted and then at three o'clock back to your uh, department for work six o'clock training again six to seven um six to seven was more um you had to to train you had to it wasn't like free time it was like time to exercise time to get moving and then seven to nine is a, like a R and R time for the monks. You go into a, a rec room, uh, watch some TV, drink some beer, drink some wine. Uh, no real formality from seven to nine. Just let go of that kind of high pressure environment. And then a nine o'clock lights out, and uh, you wake up and do it all over again the next day. That really doesn't sound too bad. I mean, that's sure. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Dumb question. Was this all in English? Yes. That's a good question. No, we had a specific English only policy. We had several monks. uh, They have several monks uh, of different um, ethnicities and everything and and different backgrounds and different languages, French, Italian, Malaysian. Yeah, Singaporean. Um, 
and they could speak all kinds of those languages. But over the years, the monastery has been around since the 50s. So they found over the years that um, speaking different languages kind of alienated the monks who couldn't understand it. So it was an English-only policy. That's a very good question. Yeah, I was very curious about that because I can imagine that it would be you know, you just don't know if it would all be English, but that's interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I, yeah. should, I should say the only other language we spoke was, or used was Shum. Shum is a meditation, a language developed for meditation and mystics. What, where does it originate? Uh, so the founder of the monastery, my guru's guru, uh, or Paramaguru, um, <clears throat> developed it from his own uh, uh, intuition and, and his own Clara audience um, capabilities. So he actually heard the language and saw it from within himself and then developed it. So it has 174 characters. Uh, it has... Uh, every word you could think of and uh, it you can speak it and it's mostly used for uh, guiding meditation. So I teach this language to students and in a shoe meditation, there is no English for an advanced practitioner. So you can go through many, many concepts in a short amount of time to someone who could, because it's very efficient, right? Just, um, just explaining to someone, you know, we're going to sit down, watch our breathing, make sure our spine is straight and everything. All of these beginner concepts of beginning the meditation, um, is one, uh, two syllables in shum called li shum. So if I'm sitting in front of a, a group of, of a hundred people, and I said, Li Shum. That's all I have to say to, to people that understand Shum. And right away, you'd sit down, get into a position, start paying attention to your breathing, and wait for the next step. And everyone is in the same place at the same time. Very important when you have group meditation. We're not just um, all in a different area of the mind, and, and who knows what's going on. Everyone is uh, doing the same thing at the same time. Very powerful. Oh, it is extremely powerful. Do you still keep up that type of practice, even though you're not in the monastery anymore? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I just had, I have uh, sessions with students and, and I still myself use it uh, every day. Wow. wow. I used to teach it online every morning at 4.30 and 5.30 when I got out of the monastery. That was exhausting. So I, yeah. I, uh, I went to one-on-one um, -on -one only. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, um, you learned quite a bit in the monastery. So I saw that you went through all types of different jobs, different roles, different departments. Yes. This was really some kind of like, you, it's like an MBA, basically. Mm, I yeah. wish it was an accredited uh, <laughs> organization. I would have like seven masters. <laughs> yeah. But things like office work, vehicle maintenance, you know, physical maintenance. I mean, it's like all of the things. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah everything. I, I think 
except for uh, surgery. <laughs> I've never said that before, but I like that. <laughs> I can't help you there. <laughs> That paints a picture, Raj. I'm telling you. <laughs> but why? But why the in-depth training? What is the What is the purpose of like train, uh, like cross training everything? Self-sufficiency. Oh, sure. Self-sufficiency. So, in a monastery, um, you know, before you hire a team to do something, the monks, you know, said, "Well, can we learn it?" And eventually, over the decades, you have these older monks who have said, can we learn it for thing after thing after thing? And, and eventually, the five departments were born, which is a department for construction and gardening mastery and, and, and landscaping and growing food, accounting, uh, church and kitchen obligations, and um, media and, and website management. So... Uh, you know, while I got to experience all of the departments, um, I, I went through two of the most um, broad departments. So the, the super seven years being trained in construction, agriculture, and like team development, and then a five years in um, writing, web, web work, uh, and travel coordination. Oh, and teaching. And teaching. Well, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that is so well-rounded. You can't even, yes. you can't pay for a degree like that. You know what I mean? Right. right, right, right. It would take a long time, much longer than 12 years in a normal setting. Right. Because we, we you know, when you don't have family, you can do a lot of stuff. You know, most people travel, but you can do a lot of stuff if you don't have family. Um and I will say for that period of my life, it was absolutely um, groundbreaking and, and necessary. Uh, but two of the best decisions I ever made in my life, as uh, one of my brother monks often says, is well, the first decision was going into the monastery. The second best decision I ever made was leaving the monastery. That's kind of what I figured. Yeah. Now, what made you want to leave the monastery? Well, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my niece, uh, honestly, I got the, I got a chance to spend four days with my niece in 2016. Um, when I first got to my mother's house, I had like a panic attack. Mm. Uh, imagine like, you know, being young and free and then like having to go back to your mother's house after 10 years. It was, it was weird. And I also had uh, a bit of PTSD. So, so the monastery, you know, you, you never traveled alone. You right. never uh, did anything without permission. You, you were not essentially given many liberties, although we were free individuals, our liberties, liberties were quite small. Part of the reason that I left because um, those eventually got smaller and smaller. And uh, my, you know, I, I'm, I'm out there in the world for four days uh, before being promoted to another rank in the monastery. And uh, it's the first time I've been back home uh, after, I think, yeah, after 10 years of being away. And um, 
I spend these four days with my sisters and their husbands and their kids and my mom. And I, I think I didn't see my dad at the time, but uh, he was in Chicago. Um, but, you know, it really uh, it's like entering a time machine. Uh, when I was young, my sisters, uh, you know, we weren't really well connected. My parents were divorced. I wasn't really well connected with them. Um, but but then I, I, I come back 10 years later. I'm different. They're different. Time restarts from anew. And I see this uh, magical thing called maturity and, and, and adulthood and, and family all working together like they never had before in my family. And I didn't think about it at the time, but when I went back to the monastery to uh, go back into my new role and promotion, um, I just couldn't shake it. I couldn't stop thinking about them. And that was a, not a good trait for a monk, you know, right? You, right? You, so I couldn't get my niece's face out of my mind. And um, I decided that I was, so it took me two years uh, two more years of training. And I decided that, uh, you know, family, not necessarily blood, but, but people that love you, um, that love you unconditionally is a very special thing in this world. It's one of the only special things we, we truly have and will, you know, can carry that with us. Everything else is transitory. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, you get a completely different, life in the monastery i mean there's it's fulfilling in different ways but yeah um nobody there has that history with you no no and and you're not you're trained to not have not develop that history and friendship with monks so monks aren't friends um okay we're brothers they're brothers but um not even that it's, it's, it's tough. It was a tough, it was a tough organization with tough men and they are, you know, you can consider them horse breakers. Like mm. you come in this wild, uh, untrained thing and they break you down psychologically and build you up again into this complete kind of, uh, human almost. Right. And, 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 right. Um, that's their job. That's what they do. That's what they do best. But, but staying there, um, uh, I, I didn't think it was a good idea. I, I don't think it's a good idea. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash special offer. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now... Back to our podcast and back to our guest. Yeah, I can imagine that might have been very difficult coming out of that and returning to, quote unquote, civilian life. I'll never forget when I was in Denver 16 days after I got out and I was living uh, down the street from a friend who I used to um, sell drugs with actually. So this fellow, uh, I, he, he went into prison cause he got caught on something and back in the day. And, and, uh, he, uh, he got out and before I went to the monastery, I gave him my asphalt business. So, so years later, he has kind of turned into a business uh, master (laughs) and he, he uh, started um, America's uh, most um, uh, it's like a, the software he created for escape rooms is some of the best software in in America. I love escape rooms. Yeah. So so much fun. (laughs) Yeah. So he, he has three, three of them across the country and they're like top rated in the country. And so, um, he started from this asphalt business. He started, you know, uh, this path of, of, you know, the same path I was on, you know, of stopping our old ways and going back and getting into this new routine. And, and so I reached out to him when I was leaving, he helped me get set up in Denver, uh, helped me get an apartment, um, now, I'll never forget, I'm, I'm having, you know, to go to the store to, to get food. Right. And I've never done that before. Uh, right. Well, when I was younger, I did. But after all this conditioning and then, you know, out free, I was, uh, I didn't want to go outside. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I remember telling him and and he was like, well, let me know when you go and, and, um, you know, we'll start small. Right. So I just had to walk there and everything. And I would tell him, you know, Hey, I'm going to go to the store and get some food. And he would say, good luck. And, 
you can do this. So uh, driving a car after all that time uh, by myself, but listening to music, that is special. So we weren't allowed to listen to, to Western uh, music, only religious uh, music. But, you know, some people ask me all the time, what's, what's one of the most powerful things now that you get to do? And it's, it's listening to anything you want at any time you know, a via a phone on Spotify or whatever. I mean, that is amazing. And you can, I mean, I, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. And we take it for granted. So sometimes we lose stuff um, and we don't have it anymore. And we realize how precious it is. It is. And um, it helps to go through that process so that you can maybe rekindle inspiration for life again it's kind of something i work with people uh through you know i don't recommend that you do some of the things that i did like uh sleep on a concrete floor for six months but i do recommend that you know you you appreciate and have gratitude for just all of the little things inside your house being inside of the house things like that it's a big one for uh, the younger students that i teach I can imagine. Now, in the monastery, did you have to take vows like poverty, chastity, obedience, those type yeah. of things? Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, we have four vows. Um, I think four, yeah. So we had to renew those every two years. And then after 12 to 15 years, you sign lifetime vows. So I was only under two year vows and I kept renewing them. And then when the time came for me to uh, decide if I wanted to take lifetime vows, that's when I decided to make my exit. Sure. Um, I mean, you said it was one of the best decisions you've ever made, but it had to be a hard one too. Oh my God. It was hard. It was hard. I cried. Um, yeah. I had, so I had 72 hours to you know, get rid of, you know, get rid of, distribute my duties and everything and um, turn in my computer. And we, we did have computers. Um, and uh, yeah, I got a plane ticket to wherever I wanted to go and, and 2,000 bucks. To start all over with, to start uh, your life, over. basically. Yeah. yeah. Start to start your life. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's something that I was thinking about uh, recently um, that, that's exactly what happens. You get 2000 bucks and you start over. And, and I got a phone. Um, I put the rest of the money in the bank. My brother-in-law helped me in Texas. I went to Texas first to spend 16 days with my family, uh, before going to Denver. And, um, you know, I grew, I, I'm amazed where it's come, where, where I've come, gone, or how do I say that? you know, how far I've come, um, you know, and then I really recommend to people that, and, and this is the point of the book, I guess. And the, this is the point of all my teachings is, is that um, you can train yourself to do anything you want to do, to think any kind of way. And I think one of the best ways is, is responsibility to follow the theme of the show. Um, you know, 
there's something about responsibility, which is why the book is called Everything is Your Fault. There's something about personal responsibility that um, forces the universe to kind of bend to your will. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, tell me more about that. That's interesting. Well, the... I'm very much a believer of being in tune with the universe and the law of attraction, of course, and everything and everything being connected. I mean, on a deeper level, a Hindu believes that they're God and that everyone is actually God. But on a, on a more mundane level, there's this philosophy of, of attraction where, where we, the way we think and the way we feel exudes out of us and then the universe kind of matches like with like so if we can be positive in tragic situations if we can take responsibility in 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 situations and circumstance that is completely out of our control if we can somehow mold those two aspects of uh philosophy together and live it i truly think that we can uh, make our dreams come true. Now, that is what's important is that that assumes that you have dreams, that, that, that assumes that you have goals and, and an aim. So without an aim, uh, there's nothing for the universe to present to you. You need that mental, uh, energetic kind of uh, magnet to, to get the attraction going. And once you have that, you couple that with uh, a willpower and uh, you're unstoppable. I truly believe that. I truly believe that. And so I think I've done, I've done good as an example. I think I've done a good job at, 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 at leading a life where, Hey, if I drop you off in, in Austin, Texas with 2000 bucks, you know, your job is now to be successful. I think I can say I've done that as an example. And um, my goal now uh, is to kind of keep that message going, you know, not just about financial success, but, but I mean, being able to uh, live through this, chaotic sometimes life and, and and power through it because we you know we have a few choices but i think that that's the best choice to be responsible accept responsibility yeah and, and to to not be blind to the tragedies of life but to survive it without losing our ca capacity and capabilities to love yeah, that's powerful. So in your teachings, in your meditations, in your coachings, do you still teach and promote the things that you learned as a monk? Good question. Yes and no. I, I, I very much um, filter my teachings based on the student. Um, I think my book has a good general teaching for a larger audience who I can't oversee from day to day or week to week. 
Right. But people that I work with fairly closely get uh, an unfiltered version of what I think they should do. And, and I tell them what to do as a psychotherapist and as a mentor. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, it's kind of tough actually, because I'm not always very nice. <laughs> um, some of that heat from the monastery comes through, but, um, it depends on the person. Sometimes they need it. Uh, sometimes they, that pulls, pushes them away. So it, it all depends on the person. Um, you know, I've worked a lot with narcissists for some reason, probably because I used to be one. Um, and, and, um, they are tough. You have to really break through their thick skulls. Um, and uh, once you get in there, though, and, and break them down a little bit, it, it's a magical uh, thing to see. I've recorded some of those sessions, actually, and it's amazing. I had one uh, student for, who I worked with for eight months. I told them the same thing in the first session as I did in the very last. And then, but, but, but on that last session, when they had this incredible kind of breakthrough, um, I said it with a lot of anger and frustration <laughs> and it was hard. It was hard. It was very, it, it would have been very, um, uh, crushing as a narcissist to hear some of these things that I said, but, but, um, man, that's exactly what they needed. And, uh, so glad to find out, you know, years later that they're, uh, thriving with their family and everything doing quite well um, i don't teach sleep deprivation which i learned and lived through for for nine months i was sleep deprived on on uh two two hour naps a day and i had to stay up all through the night uh, on various shifts in the monastery temple uh, food, and I don't teach so much, um, fasting from food. And, um, I try, I don't really teach austerity too much minimalism. Yes. But, but not renunciation. Uh. I get asked a lot by young people if they should do what I did. Um, and I, and I, I finally, a few years of thinking about that, I finally came up with an answer that I was happy with, which is uh, never join an organization that makes you sign a piece of paper that cuts off your family. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. And that tends to be at the heart of most cults that yes. we would consider cults that you have to sever ties. Yes. And, and what I found was in looking back through um, Buddhist monastic traditions, which are the like the, the strongest in history. Um, some Buddhist monasteries have thousands of monks. But what I found was that the reason that is, is that they're not that strict, that you can still go into town and hang out with your family. So there's a there's a lot of culture behind that. There's a lot of there's, there's a lot of reason, you know, to, to why they do that. And I think that's so that they continue their monastic tradition. And, and I think yeah. the Hindu monasticism is 
uh, a flame that is getting smaller and smaller by the decade. Yes, we are made to be social creatures. We are social animals and society is very important to humans. So I can imagine that would be very tough to maintain for very long. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's for the few. And uh, I don't know, eventually it may be for no one. I don't, I think our civilization is um, evolving and, and, you know, yeah. higher minded, getting higher consciousness it may not seem like it, but it is as a whole, <laughs> as a whole, if we zoom out, you know, and um, I'm just not sure a high, high minded young people of the future are, are going to be able to deal with being cut off like that for very long. I think right. eventually we'll learn this holistic version where Self-discovery is possible. Family is possible. Financial success is possible. Helping others is possible. And, and, and doing it all is possible. Yeah. So for young people now who are maybe addicted to social media, who are, you know, living a very connected life, where would you suggest they start to discover this personal responsibility? Right. Yeah, and that's something that comes up every day. I'm sure. And it may be something that's very tailored to the person. Yeah, it tends to be. But I would say I did. I wrote an article. I did a lot. I used to write articles. Um, one of my last articles was about uh, youth suicide and, and self-harm mm. via uh, social media. So... Uh, with, there was there's an enormous amount of rising rates uh, and, and uh, there's stu- so many studies to, to prove this. The, the invention of uh, Snapchat, uh, message filters to change the way you look, um, it, it all goes back to when Facebook changed its uh, privacy policy from being a you know having to be a university student to uh, anyone could make a make a profile. A lot of self-harm and suicide rates went up from there and and skyrocket after Snapchat. So um, I wrote an article detailing this for people. And uh, now I've written articles before that got maybe 40, 50,000 reads in in a matter of weeks. Uh, And this, the numbers on this article were so small. It was like, well, it shows the consciousness of where people are at, in my readers anyways, because some of my biggest articles are about love and relationships. Um, and so I decided, you know, I wasn't, it kind of turned me off from writing um, for the general public. But the point is, um, I found in this article that there needs to be a conversation there. And that's a kind of general generality that we can use with everyone it has to be a conversation. It has to be a self-awareness that comes with it. And that comes back to personal responsibility. So I need, I need the individual listening to me to understand that there's a problem and I need them to want to, to get better for themselves. I've had clients you know, I've had some um, 
families hire me for their young people, their, their sons and daughters, right? It really doesn't work too well because the son or the daughter doesn't necessarily want it themselves, but the family, the family name is at stake, you know, things like that. You know, these are very wealthy, powerful people. Um, they want the name to go on without kind of any headlines or anything. But I can't, you know, it's very difficult to break through to these people. It takes a long time, and uh, it's a very slow route uh, of, you know, really becoming their friend first, which is fine. But the person needs to want want it. You got to want it. And and I have worked with, I've worked with about 2,000 uh, young people in, since 2015. Um, and And there's a large population of those people that, want the change right so it's not just that because they will still fail um so but but first they need to be there to kind of get knocked down and try again but if they want it they will go through that process and then there has to be a maturing point so we have to take the individual and accelerate their evolution somehow their maturation and in the monastery they did that you know, with the aforementioned techniques and everything. But a lot of it was through conversation. A lot of the most powerful moments I had in the monastery were through conversation, not through uh, self, you know, discipline and, and personal hells that we had to do, but but through conversation with older monks and, and people that, you know, I got a chance to spend a lot of time with and hear their stories and things like that. So... I try to, to spend as much time with a student as they need and that I can, I can afford and that they can afford. And it's one of the reasons why I started a nonprofit. Um, and uh, so time and conversation. So if, if young people out there can get a role model or can, can get someone that they can talk to can get someone that they can write to or write to themselves, you know, in journal. Um, but it takes time. You need to accelerate the amount of time that you're evolving and, and, and yeah, accelerate it. So yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of the long, long and the short of it. Well, it's just the long of it. I want to shift gears a little bit, Raj, and talk about the work you've been doing with NASA. That is so freaking fascinating to me. Yeah. Oh, so I, I spent a year in uh, project coordination with advanced air mobility. Uh, basically, I was on a team of coordinators that worked with academ academia and engineers and scientists to further the mission of uh, human drone flight. Yeah. Wait, what, human drone flight? What does that mean? That means that eventually, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, uh, instead of taking a car to go somewhere like an Uber, we'll take a, a, a drone. Interesting. Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll fly places um, in small electrical air, air vehicles. Okay, I am totally down with that. That sounds <laughs> like fun. Yeah, the bigger picture is also cahoots. You know, you'd be able to get anywhere around the country. Uh, you know, in a matter of hours, it wouldn't take long. Wow. So what yeah. likely do you bring to that? 
Like what? What? Yeah. How? How? What? <laughs> okay. I, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to uh, uh, the director of the department, and he was a student of mine for for a few years. He meditated together every day, and uh, just worked on different things together. And he found out I was moving to California, and asked if I could apply to, to sign up to his team. So I, I did, and, and it was an amazing experience. Um, and and uh, so that ended before Thanksgiving, before Thanksgiving, and then we, we took a trip around the country, so I needed a break from everything. Sure. And, um, so now I've uh, got some other things in the pipeline, and, and I'll be excited to talk about that in the future. Nice. Well, um, your book came out what this past summer, right? Two thousand twenty-one. Yeah, and uh, it's it's out there now from O Books or uh, yeah, John Hunt Publishing. And uh, where can people find it? I mean, you know, Amazon.com is the place to be. I, I was selling copies uh, myself when I first uh, when it first got published. That was exhausting. I do not yeah. like. <laughs> yeah that's grueling i didn't i decided i didn't want to be a shipping and receiving department in my house no <laughs> so thankfully uh you know john hunt publishing and O books has um you know picked up the project and put it on amazon and barnes and noble and all that stuff and yeah indiebooksellers.com you know indie booksellers. Yeah, very lucky yeah uh, i got a lot of advice from different people about self-publishing and this and that and um self-publishing is very tough but it can be very uh valuable i'm not really um i don't know i'm not really worried about a lot of stuff so i wrote the book i'm glad it's over and and, and i love it but i i was never i didn't really want to write it uh, my student asked me to do it one of my students so I did it for them, and um, that's how I wrote the other books too. Yeah, yeah, because you you've written other books too. Let's let's uh, go through the other books you've written. Oh yeah, so when so when I was in the monastery, I started teaching online in 2015, mm -hmm. um, and I worked with about 500 individuals simultaneously yeah. as, as clients and students, and. Um, it was exhausting. It nearly broke me as a person. I just lost myself and, and I, I help coaches, you know, with their coaching sometimes. And I advise coaches to be very careful with, with how many clients you take on and how close you get to them. It's a very interesting field. Um, listening to trauma every day. So I decided to stop, um, teaching for a while and so i wrote a a manual type of book to guide people in my absence and then i just started writing and um i wrote uh two more pieces after that and then i combined all of them into a trilogy um and i I didn't publish them. Uh, they're online somewhere, but I, I eventually ended up calling it, I think, 
I don't even remember what I called it. Maybe a sacred earth, but it's out there somewhere online, I think, but it's unpublished kind of, uh, it wasn't for anyone except for my students. And that gave them something to learn. And then it gave me a chance to get back to my monastic life, get back to my own training and my own work, which that wasn't a part of my actual work. Uh, mostly we worked with people in-house and um, yeah. so that was extra, extra, I almost said extraterrestrial. That was extracurricular. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so what's amazing is, so I've been doing a podcast called Man in the Making for a few years. Yeah. And the reason that I do it is because someone who is a part of that and another generation of students that of, of my teachings online found that work, found me, and then, you know, asked if I could record my teachings. And I said, why don't we make a podcast? And so my student and I, uh, have been doing a podcast every Wednesday for almost two years. Amazing. Yeah. I can't wait to listen to it. And then you've got uh, a curriculum too. So your website, you want to plug your website? Oh yeah, sure. So I mean, Zen mind, well, there's rajanshankara.com and you can find everything from there, but my, my nonprofit where I have a digital Academy is, is very important to me. It's Zen mm -hmm. mind Academy. Um, you can just Google Zen Mind Academy. I don't think there's another one like it uh, that comes up on Google anyway. And um, it's via Teachable. So we have a, a, a digital academy that teaches Zen principles, teaches um, everything that I've developed uh, and everything that my teachers have helped me develop through their teaching in the monastery. Excuse me. So I've, I've uh, taken everything that I learned in 12 years and boiled it down into a type of curriculum. And so a student can sign up. It's like $8 a month or something to run the site uh, or that helps run the site the sites more than that. But um, that $8 a month is actually donating to a nonprofit, which is nice. And um, people can learn meditation, learn self-sufficiency and responsibility and, 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 different ways to become proactive and, and uh, yeah, I've had a lot of uh, uh, positive responses. Actually, the meditation course is awesome. It, it's a, there's a 30, there's two meditation courses, one for Shum and one uh, for beginners. It's a 30 day meditation course and it's, it's one minute extra every day to get you to 30 minutes of meditation so you start out at 60 seconds of meditation 120 seconds right three minutes four minutes five okay. minutes great no idea student no student has has failed that that course everyone who has never meditated before in their life has ended up becoming a meditator in that course no one says i can't do this and, and that's i absolutely love that um because anyone, anyone can do it. We've never had a failing student. We've never had anyone walk away who was like, not for me. So that was pretty cool. Um, and that's on there. So, and, and that allows me to do other things while people study the basics. Yeah. And then some people who get filtered through kind of work with me one-on-one, -on -one. but it allows a lot of people to study 
that stuff that I don't have to go through it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You can get all of that at Rajan, Rajan Shankara.com. Yeah. So Raj, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really enlightening. I feel like I, you know, know more about monastery life, about what it takes to be, you know, accept responsibility, et cetera. I think that's your work is really important and it's really great. No, thank you. I, I appreciate the uh, that and being on the show and having your time because it was just very valuable. Thank you. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.